All right. Welcome to those Cloud and Clear episodes. I really, truly, truly love because they feature customers and their leaders and their stories around what they're doing in the market that's so transformational, but also how they're doing it with uh, Google Cloud. And with that, please welcome David Carter, Head of Technical Services at Block One. Uh, welcome to Cloud and Clear, David. Hi, thanks for having me. We love Block One. We love that story. We love the company. Uh, but before we get into all the things that you're doing that are, you know, very impactful globally on on uh, on blockchain and everything else, um, uh, you know, it's so funny that apparently a, a, a peer of both of ours, a friend in the ecosystem, insists that you and I met many years. <laughs> they ago. Do. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh... Our, our friends at the the, the, the channel company, uh, I've worked with them many times over the years, and uh, they 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 insisted that, uh, that that we've definitely been together in board presentations, and and my suspicion is is that that is highly likely to be true, uh, just true. by virtue of the fact that uh, both of our circles have uh, overlapped, I think, multiple times over the years, and in fact, um, I have worked um, with Sada in the past, um, previous to your exclusive relationship with with google um when you guys still had a practice that was connected to to azure we uh we had worked with your team uh, back then and i'll tell you even back then it was many years ago gosh i want to say like 2010 2011 it was quite a few years ago um it was a good engagement it, it, it went very well so when, when your oh, name came back up yeah it did um, when your name came back up to us as a as a potential partner uh, in our in our developing relationship with with Google, um, it seemed like a like uh, an easy uh, yes or an easy opportunity to say yes and reconfirm that commitment. And I feel like we we're much better now than in 2010, 2011. I think culturally, there's a lot of things about us that are the same, which is Great. you know we obsess over customer outcomes. We'll do anything to help customers be successful, but we haven't at always the people and the breath and the scale to always deliver on what we want right but it's great to hear that even then uh when we're much 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 smaller yet you, you had quite a good experience but let's talk about that career the reason you say that we probably met is because you and i are very active just out there you know uh talking about the cause being vocal and opinionated about various things um and so I want to kind of follow your career a little bit about how you ended up in this role at, at Block One, which you would probably say is a very exciting assignment. Uh, yeah, I definitely would. So um, the truth is, is that I'm an accidental uh, IT guy. Uh, like I, I didn't really intend to get into technology as a, as a career path. Um, I just I just mentor early on who um, really wanted me to be focused and rightly so. Uh, you know, his notion to me was that I needed to be focused on wicked problems and that if I was I was never going to be satisfied unless I was working on wicked problems. And so inevitably, those wicked problems led to the need to better understand how technology works in an evolving ecosystem of lots of businesses. And so my start in in I.T. Um, was back in the 90s. Uh, this the color of this beard betrays my age a little bit, uh, <laughs> but uh, I started working uh, in, in technology back in the, the mid '90s, and back then the internet was still like su such a young and and uh, sort of unknown and maybe even in some cases unknowable situation that mm -hmm. um, we were we back then what we were trying to really do 
was figure out a mechanism by which, and this is true in all innovation. Um, you know, most innovation is is iterative. And what a lot of folks are trying to do is figure out how to do the exact same thing on the internet that they were doing with phones and fax machines. Right. Yeah. And I was dissatisfied with that in, in, in innately. And, you know, one of the things that uh, really got me into the idea of solving wicked problems was um, an, an, an actual, um, what I would call a deacquisition that I, I was working at, where we became an independent company apart from a much larger organization. And in hmm. the act of doing that, they said to us, hey, you're running this ERP system that we own, and we're going to give you one year to keep using this. In 12 months, we're cutting it off. Wow. And That's not a long yeah, time to get off of uh, any ERP, by the way. It's, it was, and even back then, it was insane. It was definitely, uh, and, and we made it, and, and what made it crazy, even crazier is that we decided that what we were going to do was something revolutionary in terms of um, delivering service to our customers and clients. And so I was working at a, an extremely high-end custom kitchen cabinet manufacturer in their technology group. And we decided back in 90, 1996 that we were going to design an order system that would allow a kitchen cabinet designer to build their kitchens in AutoCAD and press a button that would create a custom kitchen order on our manufacturing floor. Now, today, that doesn't in seem 96? particularly good. Yeah, in 1996. So 96. To, oh, yes. Talking about like the beginnings of the internet. Like I remember I got an email address from school in 92. And our high school was super advanced. We had an IBM token ring network. Uh, everything was Unix based on the back and I had Pine, I believe was like the email platform, maybe even before that. This was like, and then 96 was like, maybe dial up was getting a little faster. This is like super early days, David. Yeah, we, 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 uh, really took a, a lot of risks. Um, and, and the, the interesting irony is that a lot of those risks paid off because that tech has continued to evolve over the past 20 years and is still being used in, in some capacity amongst that group. It surprises me even now when I go back uh, to, you know, to that community and talk to them about this tech, they're still using derivatives of that solution in the way they design their, their custom cabinetry, even, even today. And that's really kind of what like sparked my, like, oh my gosh, we could really do interesting things globally that nobody has ever done before. And so almost every one of my roles after that were really centered on not so much like what I was called or what my title was, but are, am I getting to work on wicked problems that people actually care about solving? And I, I spent about uh, a little over 10 years uh, working directly in the, in the public education space. Mm -hmm. and, and part of my motivation- I, 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 yeah remarkable and interesting um because it's such a different path and then knowing back kind of where you are now like tell me about that because that's so unique i think in someone in your position today to have done that you mean um to like to start in, in manufacturing and then go into um like public education to go from any private uh, sector yeah. to education and then back out <laughs> <laughs> yes. So it was, uh, yeah. So uh, I, had, I, we had started a company in, in 99 that was really centered on um, sort of like the, at the peak of sort of that dot-com boom initially, 
where we were designing e-commerce and, and digital websites and spaces uh, in addition to data center construction, which is really you know, how I got you know, further along into this industry um, in, in support of small businesses and government clients. And so um, as we were preparing to um, divest that business and sell off our data centers and sell off our access, you know, we were in the process of going through um, something in the merger there. One of my clients who was the school district asked me, like, would you be willing to come work with us and help us solve some of these issues that we're having? And um, it was it was it was definitely different because I, I had already been you know part of the private industry. I had already yeah. been running in that space, and it seemed to me like, wow, this is a wicked problem. And the the problems that the school districts were having back then, this is we're talking the early two thousands now. What was that the like organizations like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation were huge in funding school districts to help facilitate the acquisition of technology. And the initial theory, I believe, was that the installation of technology would lead to the usage of technology. And right. I think we've all known and proven now that that's not actually true. Uh, but that wasn't known at the time. Right. And so the, the district that I went to work for had received several million dollars in grants for the acquisition of this tech and the distribution of this tech throughout the school district. And this is an urban district with a, you know, a, 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 like a free and reduced lunch rate of around 90%. So, I mean, it was definitely a district that needed some critical thinking about how to deliver technology to kids that wasn't going to be both a wasted investment or a waste of time. And, and so I went to work uh, with that group. I actually worked for a great uh, mentor there, a gentleman by the name of Tim Fake, who actually uh, he still um, does technology work at a place called the Milton Hershey School up in Pennsylvania. Mm. And he was a phenomenal teacher to me. He really gave me a lot of great insights into how to think about leadership and how to think about you know delivering solutions that our customers, which were really the teachers and the administration and the kids, uh, would care about and take advantage of and use. And so it was this um, it was a it was really a journey through. Um, understanding how bureaucracies uh, get <laughs> a formed and then become what I would call rigid and then right. how to proceed to break down that rigidity in order to bring innovation into a, a community that's not necessarily designed for that. And uh, whenever I look at like the frustrations that I have for things taking too long or even now, when I think about the frustrations I have around, you know, how fast we can hire people or, you know, like how quickly we can, uh, you know, bring on new tools. I, I look back at that time and I go like, you know what? Nothing is, is as difficult or challenging as that was. And, and the truth is, is that a big part of that was my own personal ignorance. You know, I think had I known then what I know now, I probably would have approached all of those problems very differently. But the truth is, is that innovating inside of school districts has been extremely challenging. And what an interesting time that we're in because school districts are now being forced to think about yes. innovating the way technology is being delivered. Yeah. And I'm super hopeful that, you know, sort of the intellectual capital that's that's within that community um, really brings the best out in, in kids because we need it. Well, we, we absolutely yeah, I'll need tell it. you, schools are near and dear to my heart for many reasons. I think one uh, is, of course, the cause of when you're doing and providing services for K through 12, which, by the way, early days of our Google relationship, we cut our teeth on three in three areas. One is ISPs just global implementations of G Suite and Google Apps across massive ISPs globally. Um, and then it was higher ed, but right right after was was K through 12. So the Chicago Public Schools project 
uh, 10, 12 years ago was like one of the most meaningful because it was the biggest implementation of Google uh, for any uh, K through 12 district. It's the third biggest school district in, in the country to begin with. But I, I, and you feel so good about the work that you're doing. You're like, oh, my God, I'm giving these kids the same tools that like the biggest enterprises have. Holy cow. We hope that it translates to um, democratization of access, right, to technologies and information. And they get to learn these tools and, and skills that are transferable to, to university and work. But the other part, which that you pointed out, was like the frustration of, of trying to provide services <laughs> to inside of a, a, a highly politicized bureaucracy was also sometimes very challenging. <laughs> Yeah. And I do like, I, I get how, you know, w one of the things that I've, you know, sort of come to this conclusion about just in, in general is that um, because organizations are created by people, they are also, they are also natural structures and because we're a part of nature. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, um, when, it, when an organism becomes a thing and it becomes a solid thing, it wants to defend itself. Right. Naturally, it wants to defend itself. Mm -hmm. And one of the challenges that you run into is that um, I think it's uh, Jim Keller who says this really well. He's a, you know, he's a, an innovator in the sort of Intel and AMD and chip making space. And one of the things that he says uh, quite a bit is that you know, like once you start that the process towards order, it's this inevitable train that just like never ends. And unless you're purposeful about the introduction of innovation, because a lot of people uh, attribute um, innovation with chaos. And I think there's a fair um sense towards that i think it's a fair association but um pressuring an organization towards chaos requires uh, a, a purposeful intent and a, a, an insistence and your insistence has to be much greater than the resistance and and so you know i've really tried to take those sentiments to to heart and in in public school districts the you know the the the, the pressure towards order is built on the number of constituents that they have to satisfy and in school yeah. districts, it's, you know, the public taxpayers, it's, it's business and community, it's Federal parents, it's the teacher. Yeah, yes, yes, board, yes. All that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so it's really difficult. I, I never envy a superintendent their role because mm -hmm. of just the sheer number of individual differing expectations and demands from groups that they have to keep satisfied. It's very yeah. hard to do. My, my first cousin who I grew up like sister and brother were both, uh, only children a year apart. So we're very close. Uh, she's now a principal at LA Unified School. And I remember years ago, she was kind of in this and she was into like change management and all these other things that she was really good at. I was like, hey, come to the private sector. Let's do this. But she was like insisting on the cause, the mission. Um, and I don't know how she does it, but I know that the people that stick around and do are unique and they're yes. gifts to the world. Yeah, they are. And they're doing it because of the kids and i just admire it mm -hmm. greatly i admire that uh population greatly yeah yeah totally totally agree and, and interestingly enough like the thing that got me to leave uh working inside of public education and, and going back to the private sector um was a, a relationship that i i d developed with dell mm. um when when uh, in the late uh 2000s early 2010s there was a pretty large scale initiative. There was a there was a recession occurring at the time, and uh, there was some extra funding that was being delivered to school districts specifically. Um, the district that I was uh, leading at the time, from a technology perspective, 
we decided that we were going to work with a partner to try to really bring proper one-to-one computing to every kid in this district. And that required a whole lot of foundational construction, uh, but we needed partners to work with to help us facilitate those efforts. And Dell came in and we, you know, we brought in a lot of players. I mean, it, it, it wasn't just Dell that we brought in. We brought in a lot of folks that really helped us get from here to there. Um, but Dell was one of those partners that truly um, communicated an understanding of what it meant to deliver a meaningful education um, to a kid using technology. Yeah. And yeah. that um, it, it was really a person at, uh, at, at Dell who is still there and I still admire greatly who leads their education work. And he was really the sort of the foundation of our thinking about one-to-one computing and how to deliver proper one-to-one computing to kids. And I loved that mission so much that I wanted to be like, like I could tell that he was working on a wicked problem. Yeah, and, right. and so that's what actually led me back to the private sector. When we started um, chatting so much about the kind of issues that school districts around the world have and how to innovate with not just technology, but um, really rechaining the way educators think about using technology in the classroom, um, that was a worthwhile problem to solve. Yeah. And so uh, I, I went back to the private sector to work for Dell in there. It wasn't just K-12. I mean, we did a lot of work in the higher ed space. Um, I did do some work in the government space. Um, but what was tricky back then was uh, was the fact that um, it was during a very brief window of time at Dell when um, Michael Dell was not the CEO. Uh, and, that was a- and that was the Kevin Rollins era. Mm-hmm. And and that that was an interesting time at Dell. Uh, I I know that um, you know I had a, I had a great time there, but there was a lot of folks that I respect a lot um, who did definitely did not have as great of a time as I did. And it it certainly led me to realize that um, their wicked problems were much more internally focused at that point in time than externally focused, like towards the, their customers. <laughs> and while I had voice in that. I didn't. I didn't want to shift my my focus of attention towards the internal. I really wanted to stay focused on solving problems for clients, and so uh, we. I made this leap to uh, to the to the um, really the value added reseller in the the partner industry, and what I found there again was a a whole bunch of um, what I would call centers of excellence mm-hmm. around delivery, around talent, around security, around uh, you know how to facilitate engagements. I mean, to me, you know, one of the things that makes, frankly, SADA special is uh, your project management organization is, Mm. frankly, phenomenal. And one of the things I've learned over the years is that great talent doesn't matter if you can't organize them well. Oh, my God. I'm so happy you're talking about this because I get in trouble for this, but I really do put the PMO on a pedestal because... And everybody's like engineering and engineering and engineers and yes, and whatever, right? Sales gets a lot of attention because they, you know, without revenue, we have nothing. And But I'm like, yeah, and we need the best engineers, of course. But put the best engineers in a chaotic project. Not only will it not succeed, I don't care how good they are, but they will also probably quit. Yep, that, that's, right? that's it exactly. That, that's, and that has been my exact experience, like seeing... Uh, what I would call um, poorly thought through project management has probably been one of the, you know, sort of the the, the, the chief problems that I've had internally in, in any engagement that I've, I've run through, whether it's developing software, whether it's engaging in, um, you know, like physical construction of data centers, uh, it doesn't matter. 
um, great project management company. Mm. It covers up a lot of sins. It covers up a lot of sins. But by, by the way, David, a lot of those sins, so to speak, are not even like there's just stuff that's always going to go wrong or unexpected right. or unplanned. Even if you're perfect in the things you control, the uncontrollable oh, yeah. will definitely try to knock things out of, you know, uh, out of control, like towards chaos. But, you know, the, the thing that um, I admire about project managers, especially when you get to the kinds of engagement we have with you, but really any any enterprise level engagement and you're the vendor and you've been on the vendor side, like the partner side, right? Yourself. You know that we get blamed for everything. Like oh, yeah. Propensity. Oh, uh, between oh, yes. uh, between block one, Google and SADA, like if anything goes wrong, it's probably SADA's fault, right? As everybody's default. That's so fair. Like, that's we, a, that's we like, have to be even better, right? But not only that, like project managers in every organization, internal, external, they have to control and manage a group of people and things they don't have direct authority over. Even within SADA, they're trying to manage and rally these folks outside of their own little PM group, which is most of the folks on a given project. They don't report to them. And they even have to be responsible for like your team's work streams. They got to make sure your team's doing what they're supposed to do. And they definitely don't. <laughs> they're not even in the same company, but they got to make sure they're doing what they're supposed to do. That is an amazing set of soft and hard skills. That is like the it's a beautiful thing when it's done right. It is a beautiful thing when it's done right. And I, I, and I, like, I, I want to call him out because he's good and he did a great job. Um, Patrick, on, on your project management team in particular, um, he handled the fact that our internal project management systems and services are very different from your team's project management systems and services. In fact, we actually took a couple of lessons away from your team and awesome. have incorporated them into our technical wow. services work too because of what we had a chance to bear witness to. Not to because we have, we have the same, yeah, so we have the same challenge where um, we don't control many of the factors that enable our success in terms of delivery. Like, like we are an internal vendor in technical yeah. services to our engineering and business community. And so we have to take that same sort of thinking that Patrick brings brought to the table with our projects and make sure that, uh, that like, A, we can encourage people to do things that we don't control and yeah. that we all come to alignment on the output of an engagement and what we define as success for an engagement. And that skill mm -hmm. is really hard to come by. And I gotta say, in fact, Patrick is actually the second project manager we worked with. We originally were working with Tony and uh, both of them were phenomenal. They both like the handoff between the two of them was excellent. Awesome. I, uh, I, I could not have been happier about, I was nervous. I want to be yes, honest with yes. you. I was very nervous, but I could not have been happier with him. on this podcast. Yes. He had, yeah. And he helped me prep for this as well. Yeah. I mean, Sharif came in, uh, consolidated our PMO. We had, you know, a workspace team and a GCP team with th their different practices. And and again, like we're very self-critical, but we're we we have the kind of metrics today that we haven't had before. We're building those out. NPS and CSAT are critical to us. Um, retention of customers, you know, recommits, uh, next project. You know how it is. You've been on our side, and imagine now. Because well, you were part of the team that decided with you know decided to choose you know Google right, um, and and that's not the easiest decision for for every customer to make. And that's you. Imagine like a traditional enterprise who makes that decision. It's not nobody. Nobody gets fired for buying AWS or Azure. Just 
you know, if you care about just preservation of your job, just buy those. So anybody choosing this is taking a bold step. And, and so winning these, these, uh, these customers is hard and it's a lot of work. So once we win them, we have to keep them forever. Like our business model just breaks if customers don't renew or customers don't, you know, buy more services. So it's, uh, and so much of that depends on the PMO. It really does. Yeah, to- totally agree. I mean, one of the biggest things um, that, I, I t- from my perspective, re- re- really made the difference was the 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 agreement and the the delivered commitment on continuously managing our expectations. Mm. You know, like they didn't. Nobody hid from things that they couldn't do. Nobody hid from things that they needed us to do. Yeah, everything was clear. Everything was concise, and when there was a problem and, and like, like just like you described, like inevitably chaos, um, you know, starts to creep in as you start to do a project. There's just things that you didn't know were going to be there. And, and when they appear dealing with them is actually part of the professional expertise. And yeah. what I can say is that, you know, as our expectations were managed very consistently, I, um, you know, it, it gave me a heck of a lot of confidence in, uh, and I actually, you know, I don't, I don't mean to be self-congratulatory, but the, the reality is, is that we weren't sure whether um, going the GCP route was going to work for us. And we weren't sure whether um, going to Sala route was going to uh, work for us. Um, because like in anything, what you try to do is you try to get as much uh, collective information as you possibly can. Yeah. And like you, like you described, like, like the ability to lose a customer is very compromised when you're choosing to, to dedicate your relationship to the, the very cloud provider that is the smallest of the big three. Yeah. And, yeah. and in those, in those situations, it's, there was a lot of risks uh, that we were, we were taking, but I think those risks were well-founded on um, not just a commitment from Google, but a commitment from you guys to be there for us when we needed you. And yeah. that has um, been uh, true till now. And it's, it's true today as, as we're dealing with situations right now. So uh, I feel like that. The, yeah, well, the, the, the return, the return on that investment for us is, is already, um, proving great. It's it's not lost on us the risk that customers take, and the not companies aren't things, but the people within our customers, the risks that they're taking when they choose us, like whether it's perceived or real, we are. We, it is not lost on us. We're like, oh my god, we got to make sure that not only David Carter doesn't get fired, but we want him to get promoted. <laughs> like that's our view, and I. It's just it's pretty simple, but like if we make sure that this decision is not only accepted but celebrated a year from now six months from now too. we that's that's you know we'll be fine like we're solving for that and and then really everything else kind of models models after that um i do want to pivot a little bit because i think block one as a company as an organization as an entity is so freaking interesting right in the middle of what seems to be a complete uh transformation in terms of how people think about identity and authority and um and you know i think when anybody says the word word blockchain it's a it's sort of like anything that becomes sort of a meme gets lost in translation to begin with but i think you have two generally two sets of people ones that are like can't stop talking about it because they feel like it's it is everything right um and then people that are like i have no idea what it is i just know that you know apparently a bunch of people are making money on this you know crypto thing and now there's like this other thing and and but like blockchain's a different way of um authorizing things i don't know they're like in that camp so why don't we hear from someone who's actually doing 
the transforming. And sure. um, just sure. tell us, like, just start from the beginning. What What's sure. Block One? How did it get founded? Yeah, so 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 Block One is, or really was, an, a, an evolution of, of several earlier sort of blockchain ideas that were centered around this notion of, um, like, transparent and democratic delivery of decision-making, so, like, smart, the notion of smart contracts, um, without the, um, you know, sort of, and I, I hate to even use the word traditional because let's be honest, like Bitcoin wasn't a thing 20 years ago. <laughs> so, uh, but, but, but one of the, one of the inherent challenges with, uh, engaging in, in some of the, uh, traditional styles of, of blockchain delivery was that this notion of massive amounts of compute and, and really compute resources that even today are actually starting to cause real, like they're starting to cause real problems mm. with um, with power grids and with how we handle, uh, you know, individual services and how and like how we deal with the fact that um, these things are finite, you know, particularly with Bitcoin, uh, are finite, uh, you know, endpoint resources. And so um, our our one of our founders was particularly interested in this notion of creating a you know a distributed ledger technology that would allow uh, stakeholders to both uh, participate from a, like a proof of stake uh, perspective, but more, more importantly, um, be able to create use cases that were way beyond cryptocurrency. I mean, the, the truth is, is that I, I fundamentally wish that cryptocurrency was not the first innovation in blockchain, because mm -hmm. I think it's actually clouded the abilities that blockchain inherently creates for, for customers and clients. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, uh, we, we, like, I think it was even uh, showcased here recently, but, uh, you know, there's an EOSIO project right now that's uh, centered on this notion of uh, being able to properly track like commodities materials from their source all the way to their delivered endpoints, uh, food sources all the way from like how those food sources were provisioned, how those food sources were, were uh, you know, uh, given nutrients uh, all the way up to how it got into your food. And the ability to trace that material all the way to its source has real value, particularly from a resource management perspective, from a logistics perspective. And that's just like one idea of millions that are like way outside of cryptocurrency. I almost feel like, you know, cryptocurrency is this, it's not nothing. It's clearly an important concept because the, the truth is, is that the nature of the way that we think about money does need to, to evolve, I think. And... Uh, I don't I don't think there's an inherent problem with um, putting the control of the way we engage in commerce closer to the people who engage in the commerce. Mm, right? I don't think yeah. there's an inherent problem with that. Yeah. Uh, and, and I don't think neither, neither does Block One. So in, in that sense, um, our, our focus of attention at Block One is building a, a, a set of technologies that allow enterprises and and individuals really to create blockchain solutions that are performance, that are particularly fast. Mm -hmm that mm -hmm. are secure and traceable. And in, in those sense, um, I do fundamentally believe that EOSIO is among the best in the business. There, there are others out there that I think are interesting, that are, that are worth considering. Uh, I don't think EOSIO is gonna be the only DLT out there that, that, that adds value. I think this notion that there's gonna be sort of like one blockchain to rule them all is a complete misnomer. I think ultimately mm -hmm. what's going to happen is just like 
we have a preponderance of you know database designs today in the you know sort of the traditional SQL world. We're going to have a preponderance of blockchain technologies that serve specific use cases and purposes mm-hmm. that are going to be value at an individual point in time. And it might not always be EOSIO, but one of the things that I think does make EOSIO special is the the fact that its ability to scale from a transactions per second perspective is not just proven, but it's being actively used. And yes. that that to me uh, speaks well to the, the future of the kinds of work that we're doing. So a lot of the focus of attention that we have today is on building products that prove solutions like EOSIO are perfect for not just the enterprise, but any industrial work. Hey, by the way, I also signed up for voice, um, which I think is is interesting, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, as I was researching yes. this, I was like, oh, oh, what, what do you mean? Like a, a, a platform in which people's identities like authenticated. That's right. So there's not all this noise and bots and crap. And, you know, people can be very bold when it's all anonymous, you know? Um, That's right. Uh, I think that's sort of well, I think there's something else too. Yeah. Um, like one of the things that I find really interesting about the work that they're doing is this notion of creating a platform where the actual content creators themselves have a whole lot more control over how their information gets used, taken advantage of, and how it can be monetized. Mm. You know, ultimately, content creators, you know, people who who publish material, need to make a living. And the, the sort of the fundamental vision behind voice is to give these content creators that voice mm. and that control over how their content gets valued. And that's fantastic. Gosh, that is such a separate, yeah, it's such a separation from, you know, some of the more traditional, uh, you know, sort of media outlets. And I yeah. think that's, you have I think the future in that is right. Today if you're a content creator of how to do it, one is you're just going to make it free and, you know, you have ads based kind of support, whatever. And then it's the other one's like, great publications like the information is like complete paywall like this is how we do it and we control all of our account you know like we have our own editors and stuff doing this stuff on journalists so I, I think there's um as far as you know opening up the the gig economy in a safe way for content creators journalists authors artists who knows i think um that's i'm excited to kind of you know get in there and check it out for myself what would be some other really easy to understand either customers or users of the platform um, that you you're able to talk about sure so um there, there's a there's a, a company that we've been working with now that's that's out in the open uh, called mythical games um they've built a, a game that's just been published it's a it's an mmo that's that has eosio as the underlying blockchain technology mm. and it's uh it's a service that really allows individual users of the, i think the, the game is called blanco's block party and uh, I would call it, uh, I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying this, but I, I would call it um, Minecraft meets MMOs uh, with um, gamification. I mean, it's a really interesting, fun game. Like my children have been playing it and I've, I've enjoyed spending time in there. Um, but, and, and here's like that, that individual use case, like the, the, for the creation and construction of a game, um, wasn't necessarily something that Block One themselves had, had thought through or considered. But the community itself had started to engage in building these distributed applications that enable this sort of tech. And what's cool for them is that using EOSIO affords them the ability to properly track the actual individual user's journey through the game over time. And that's, that's so you cool. know, an, an incredibly interesting use case 
for uh, you know for a blockchain style service. I think. And I'm sure that's that's just the beginning, right? I mean, so there's a bunch of stuff you can't talk about that's gonna you know it's up and coming, which you warned me about, so I'm not gonna dig in. But are you able to talk about the the broader? Uh, I mean, it's public uh, on your own, own website, but the whole Google Cloud and Block One relationship, the broader relationship outside of like GCP, yes, you're a GCP customer, but what's a broader partnership mean? Yeah, so um, there, there's really a, a couple of things that are that are going on here. So you know, the first one obviously is a reciprocal relationship where we're taking advantage of GCP's capabilities and skills, particularly in their confidential compute space. I mean, we, we, we think very, very highly of the nature of the need to secure really you know, blockchain solutions. Um, and, and so Google's been a great partner in helping us facilitate that work, uh, particularly around their, you know, their AMD SEV tech uh, underlying that. So that, that kind of stuff is um, extremely meaningful. So there was definitely a reciprocal relationship there, where you know we had a chance to you know make an investment in, in uh, you know our relationship with Google, and in exchange, you know we get access to um, you know their their product teams and the ability to um, to work with them to better understand our use cases, so that they can align their products to our needs. And that has already proven, you know, and we've only been at this since October of 2020, as it stands. Um, but even in, in these six months since we've started this, it's already um, paying dividends for us, which which we you know, obviously want to see quick returns on those investments. And it's now it's now happening. So um, but there is, a, like you said, there is a, a larger framework to the relationship. And one of the things that, that really motivated us to engage and want to engage in a relationship with an organization like Google and GCP was this um, notion that blockchain tech does have this um, that moniker that you were describing earlier, this sort of notion that, you know, it's cryptocurrency and it's about you know, trying to, you know, do things that are apart from, you know, what we traditionally think of as, as the economy, when the reality is, is that blockchain tech has been, actually been around for substantially longer than it's, than we've been using it, A, and, and B, um, the potential use cases for it are well beyond cryptocurrency. So what we yeah. wanted to do was to, to work with a partner who understood that value, who uh, understood that there was going to be a future in blockchain tech that wasn't just tied to cryptocurrency yes. and to engage them and them in getting an understanding of how this works um, and us in getting a better understanding of how they work. And so um, part of what we've been doing with, uh, with Google is working with them on them becoming an actual block producer for the EOS mainnet. And the, the beauty in that is that they get a chance to get educated into the, the difference between the way, because I think there are, they are already doing this with, with Bitcoin and with, uh, with Ethereum. But yeah. our tech does work substantially different than that. And so because of that, giving them a sense for how that functions and why it works the way it does helps them understand um, the differences between these bits of tech and the different use cases that this tech might bring with it. And so um, they've been great partners in, in helping to, to, to facilitate that onboarding for them becoming a block producer. And here's like a, a real truth. Uh, Having an organization like Google be a block producer brings um, the thought of this kind of idea to the mainstream. Like when you start seeing companies like Google and Microsoft and IBM and Amazon, like these types of companies starting to engage in this style of work, it gets a whole lot of other, it starts knocking dominoes down. Yeah, has that mainstream and, effect for sure. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And so getting a, a brand 
like Google to, to partner with us um, has, has value from that specific perspective, like getting folks to understand that this is not yeah. just, you know, you know, an idea for, you know, for folks that are, um, you know, sort of behind the scenes. This is a, this is a, a concept that we need to think about very, very seriously from, from how we facilitate voting in, you know, in elections yeah. Yeah. to, you know, how we facilitate, um, you know, the tracing and, uh, of, of equipment and, and how we um, manage our finances. So there's a lot of inherent um, capabilities of blockchain that just haven't yet matured to the mainstream. And this is really, I believe, the first step in that, uh, that journey. And then, and then they're willing to talk about it publicly as well, like the partnership, you know, and I just on a sort of a you know, strategic standpoint, what we've seen from Google, not just for block one, but for other platform companies uh, or SaaS companies is this um, Google's idea of partnership with their customers is, I think, quite different. And we've really been, you know, benefiting from being able to uh, engage with block one or quantum uh, metric or whoever, Virtue. Now, uh, some others I can't you know, think off the top of my head. I'm not sure which one's cleared for publicity or packet fabric. All these that are like, hey, we're going to partner with you. We're not just going to be the underlying technology that you know runs part of your offering to customers. But we're going to partner with you in these interesting ways. And I think that is definitely um, unique from what I see from the bigger providers. But I think it's uh, Google does clearly see itself as a partner to its customers because, and I love the business model, right? About the incentives, how, how it drives the right incentives. Even for us, like we play a role in this uh, in, in arrangement, but clearly the more successful block one is, the more GCP you will consume. <laughs> so it's not very, you know, it's not a mystery why this partnership is so important and why they wanna see you succeed, just like they wanna see all their, uh, their other customers succeed. And uh, we just love being able to take that to market in a way that's like, yeah, TK actually cares what's happening with with Block One, you know. Um, well, I, I would say that um, you know when it comes to organizations like Google and organizations like Block One, when when you when you connect organizations together, like you know like Sada and Block One have been connected together. When you when you engage in that, um, you start what I what I call the journey of the circle of trust. Yes. And in, in that in the journey of the circle of trust. Um, at the very edge, er, almost everything is is about verification of statements, right? It's not a, it's not an inherent trust relationship. It's a um, you know essentially a, a set of rules that have been both established by two groups that you agree to abide by. And then as you move um, closer to the center of that circle of trust, what begins to happen is a mutual stake in each other's success. Yeah. And one of the things I've felt very strongly about in in our relationship with with Google and our relationship with Sada is that the speed at which we moved from that sort of like the edge of that circle to, to, to the center of that circle was both quick and purposeful hmm. uh, in that there, there was a desire on all parties to demonstrate a mutual stake in each other's success in ways that made everybody uncomfortable. <laughs> and you know, like, you know, you're doing something interesting when everybody feels like, you know, this is going to be hard, yeah. but this is going to be worth it. And yeah. And I, I felt like that journey towards the center of that circle of trust has been um, quite, quite fast. Um, but, but because it was purposeful and because it was agreed upon by all parties, 
um, it was able to happen with a with a with a level of uh, alacrity that I was surprised by. In fact, pleasantly surprised by. Yeah, and and look, I think that once you're there, and you defend that position vigorously, what's possible if you're there for a long period of time is magic. I think the speed of execution, the the, the persistent intention, the transformational work, the risk that you can take together, like it's really what we're trying, we, we try to get to within all groups within SADA. I think that's why we perform certain things cross-functionally so well, but all, uh, within teams, but really with our customers, when you get that three-way trust, us, our customer and Google, oh man, we can do amazing things. But also look, I think that's how, where competitive advantage comes from. Like we want everyone to be in a position to like, Outcompete because they have the trust and the speed and the team. Well, I, I think. Well, I, I can say too. I mean, like we, we just finished a pretty big capstone project with you guys, um, and and that project was had a lot of risks associated with it. Um, you know, we were we were taking a a design architecture for you know how we were thinking about um, the distri- the distribution of our infrastructure and thinking about re-architecting it in a way that gave us lots of advantages, you know, so things like better resiliency, things like um, better regional control, uh, things like higher security profiling, things like the incorporation of, you know, RBAC and the access management best practices. There was lots of um, what I would call, like, we were trying, like, when we had the list of the things that we wanted to accomplish, I fundamentally did not think that we would actually be able to hit every one of those. Uh, And we did. Like we really did, and I, I, it was really a testament to um, our willingness, right, to bend to the the the, the best practices that were being given to us um, through SADA. Um, SADA's willingness to bend to our design and and our design, particularly not just our design criteria, um, but really the fact that like what we're trying to do, like one of the things I fundamentally believe about tech, the technical services work that we do, is that we're making products. And we're making products that serve customers. And my customers are right now, they're internal clients primarily. But those internal clients create solutions for you know, our outward facing uh, communities. And in that, in that context, um, being able to do such a massive engagement um, so well and on time and, uh, and we're, you, should, you should be aware of this too. I, mean, I should tell you this because literally today, um, we deployed all of the heavy atoms inside of our Google infrastructure, and that new heavy atom architecture is now. Um, it, we haven't transitioned over to it yet, but it's now running inside of our inside of our fleet. And so far, so good. I mean, it's really uh, it's treated us right. It is um, it is well aligned with our future path. And what's great is is that it gives us um, a, an iterative evolutionary opportunity to continue to add features to the service that our customers want. So. Oh, David. I, I think that's a great note to end on. Uh, I feel like you and I could talk forever on this and, and geek out and talk culture and strategy. And I could see why our two organizations get along so well. Also, I feel like we're just very culturally, we see things the same way in many things. And um, I'm glad this engagement brought us together, you and I. Hopefully, we'll see each other in person uh, within the next few months. And uh, we really look forward to taking on this promise. I mean, we've committed to each other for years uh, just yeah. as a starting point. And our intention is to have you as a customer for life. 
and to keep doing this for a very, very long time, because I think what we do and bring to market, as as I think you're you're testifying to here, is, uh, is special. And I'm really proud of my teams. Big shout out to PMO, Patrick, Watson and team, Sharif, everything with their building, Miles, the engineering team. Um, and, you know, we intend to just keep getting better at what we do and provide more resources, hire more people. Um, and so I hope that we get to fulfill the the parts of the uh, roadmap for you. As much of it makes sense, we hope to be there every step of the way and be part of, part of the success that Block One has. Well, what, one thing that I, I would I would want to close out on is that um, this is a recruiting mission for me, too. Um, <laughs> we have a lot of wicked problems to solve. And we are using technologies that are at the very edge of what is possible. And we are absolutely in the, in the market for top minds to help us solve these issues and to help us engage in creating solutions that the rest of the community is going to be able to take advantage of. So, you know, we're, we're constantly on the lookout for that engineering talent. We're constantly on the lookout for that development talent. And, you know, for those of you out there who are, are hearing this, if, uh, if blockchain technology is interesting to you, and if you've got an engineering mindset to you, and you like solving really wicked problems, um, find us because um, we're looking for you. Yeah, block one. David's hiring. You heard you heard that. And, uh, you know, work in this ecosystem. That's that is a fantastic opportunity to enhance someone's career just to spend some time with blockchain, with Google Cloud uh, under David's great leadership to definitely take take him up on that. Um, and uh, again, thank you so much for being my guest. Uh, this will go out in a couple of weeks. I just can't wait for the, the world to hear this. Tony, appreciate you. Have a great time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Cloud and Clear. Check the show notes for links to this week's topics. And don't forget to connect with us on Twitter at Cloud and Clear and our website, sada.com. Be sure to rate and review the show on your favorite podcast app.